So here we come in our uh, journey through uh, Luke, visiting these various places, and we find that we're at yet another meal. I don't know if you have thought about it, but in Luke's Gospel, there are more meal times than in any other of the Gospels. And the theme of meals, often uh, celebratory ones like the prodigal uh, son, run through this Gospel. And indeed, in the stories that we're looking at, um, uh, we will eventually come to the, the meal that we think of as the Last Supper, and our tour of Luke will culminate in a very simple but the very revealing meal that took place at Emmaus. So it's all about uh, meals. Of course, in the society of Jesus' time, eating together was a, a big thing, as we'll discover as we look at this uh, passage. This all takes place in the last year of Jesus' ministry, uh, what um, sometimes is described as uh, the year of opposition. And indeed, we're here now in the closing months. We're building up to uh, the time in Jerusalem and all that uh, took place there. The rulers and the Pharisees, they were becoming increasingly concerned about their own position. And after the raising of Lazarus, they began to plot against him. Have a look at John 11, verses 45 onwards, and and you'll see that. So we come to this, um, uh, uh, yet another incident, another story, where we see Jesus, the healer and the teacher, confronting the establishment. I love it. I love a rebel. You know, I love this idea of the Lord saying to people, be different. Think different. Don't follow the, the trend, as it were. And here, in this story, that's exactly what we see. He challenges uh, the established order of things. He's at the home of a prominent religious leader, and he's being watched. And it's the Sabbath. They wanted him to slip up. They wanted him to do something they could accuse him of. They wanted to be able to turn the people against him. And so when Jesus is confronted with this very sick man, he begins by asking his watchers, the experts, the religious leaders, a simple question. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? It's a yes or no answer, isn't it? And as a consequence, they're silent. I wonder why that is. It could be because of all the previous encounters with the Lord over the subject of the Sabbath. In the, in the previous uh, chapter, uh, we read about that, don't we? About when the Lord was in a synagogue uh, teaching, and there was a woman there who was uh, <coughs> crippled. She'd suffered for 18 years. And Jesus calls her forward and heals her of her 18 years of suffering. You're set free from your infirmity, he says. And of course, uh, the rulers uh, become indignant. And uh, so the Lord answers them, you hypocrites, doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey 
from the stall and lead it to give it water. Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? And it tells us then that when he said this, all his opponents were humiliated. The leaders, the religious, the posh folks, they were humiliated. But the people delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. So perhaps they remembered that and realized that they had no answer and they were silenced. And so Jesus healed this man. And he goes on again to tell them about their hypocrisy. In verse 5, he reminds them that they would break the Sabbath, the Sabbath according to their rules, to save something or someone of their own. The suffering of others could continue for the sake of following these rules, so long as it was not their suffering. So again, they were silenced. Remember elsewhere, Jesus uh, tells us that the Sabbath was made for man. It was made for his good, for his benefit, not man for the Sabbath. I struggle over that sometimes. I find a helpful verse in Isaiah 58 and verse 13. If you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's day, holy day honorable, and if you honor it by not going your own way and not doing as you please or speaking idle words. There's a challenge, isn't it? You see, it's not about what you don't do. It's about what you do do. It's about not pleasing yourself. It's about not following your own inclination. Really, it's about having a heart for others, isn't it? The point here is that the mere following of rules of the law does, must not prevent something good from happening. And so Isaiah paints that picture of a selfless observance, not doing as you please or going your own way. But there's no restriction on good deeds that benefit not you, but benefit others. So that's the Sabbath. For us, that's today, isn't it? We call it the Lord's Day. In the Christian calendar, we chose the first day of the week when the resurrection took place to be our Sabbath. As you learned last week, if you were paying attention, the seventh day, or even, indeed any day, was different in the Jewish calendar. It began in the evening, not in the morning. And, of course, it was the evening of the sixth day that began uh, the Sabbath. But the principles are the same. It's about setting a time aside to please not ourselves, but to please God. So as we move on, I'd like you to share with me in a short video clip. I look down on him because I am upper This is quite old, so hence the... um... I look down on him because I am upper class. I look up to him because he is upper class. But I look down on him because he is lower class. (laughs) I am middle class. 
I know my place. I look up to them both. But I don't look up to him as much as I look up to him. Because he has got innate breeding. I have got innate breeding, but I have not got any money. So sometimes I look up to him. I still look up to him. Because although I have money, I am vulgar. But I'm not as vulgar as him. So I still look down on him. I know my place. I look up to them both. But while I'm poor, I'm industrious, honest and trustworthy. Had I the inclination, I could look down on them. But I don't. We all know our place, but what do we get out of it? I get a feeling of superiority over them. I get a feeling of inferiority from him. But a feeling of superiority over him. I get a pain in the back of my neck. I know. I want to ask for a show of hands who remembers uh, the original, but uh, there's some stuff on the TV that's really funny and has something to say, doesn't it, if you think about it? Uh, and uh, I hope you'll see the relevance as we move further into the, uh, the chapter. For although the Lord was being watched by the religious leaders and the teachers of the law, he too was watching. And uh, we're told in verse 7, he noticed how the guest picked the places of honor at the table. So he told them the story, the story of the wedding feast, of the person who thought they were more than they were and takes uh, a place higher up than they were worthy of, uh, which, of course, spoke to the culture of the time. And uh, we understand this even today, don't we? All through time, uh, this has been the way. In the Middle Ages, um, there was the, uh, uh, the lords and the nobility who sat on the top table, and there was the rest who sat, do you know what the expression is? Thank you, that's right, below the salt. Because salt was something for the nobility, for the rich, for those that were worthy of it. The rest, I say us, because I'm sure that's where I would have been if I was born in the Middle Ages, uh, uh, didn't get salt and we were sat in an unprivileged place. And that idea, really, if you think about it, has been perpetuated through the ages. And even uh, uh, today, um, we uh, see this, don't we? The Lord Mayor's banquet when a foreign dignitary visits and the Queen entertains them, the, um, the fuss and the, the, the pomp and the ceremony and the, uh, you know, who's in the right place and all that that takes place uh, is just um, makes us, perhaps for some it's something that we admire and we say it's part of our uh, tradition and uh, the pomp and so on. But perhaps for other of us, others of us, more revolutionaries at heart, as it were, we don't really quite understand uh, the relevance. But in the Lord's day, 
uh, it really mattered who you were, what your status was. And truthfully, it is very much like that in our day. My uh, mind was taken to uh, a verse in Romans 12. And remember on Tuesday, those that were here, I did share some of Romans 12 with you uh, for a different part of this reading. But this is what came to my mind. Romans 12 and chapter 3 we read, For by the grace given me I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. On Tuesday, we we read on because we were looking at the idea of being members one of another. But that uh, came to my mind. I realise these words are written in the context of Christian service, but that phrase, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, sort of haunted me as uh, I was um, looking at uh, this passage and this parable that Jesus told about the person who thought they were better than they were and as a consequence uh, were humiliated. You see, I, I believe that the lesson that we're seeing here, I believe that what we need to grasp is that God cares more about what we are than who we are. Some of you maybe watch that thing on the TV, who do you, was it, who do you think you are, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I've only seen the odd one and I've seen that sort of trailers. It doesn't appeal to me too much because although I like history, I'm not very good at celebrities. So when it says, you know, so-and-so um, is going to be looking at their family history to see who, who they are, well, I don't know who they are to begin with, so it sort of <laughs> is quite difficult. Um, but... Uh, the one, I do remember one I saw who was an actor, and um, he was quite distressed to discover that one of his ancestors was indeed an actor, but he wasn't a very good one, <laughs> and uh, sort of fell on hard times. And I think somebody else discovered that one of their um, relatives was a criminal of some sort. But, uh, but, you know, we are very concerned about who we are, aren't we? And about what we do. I know I've told some of you this story about years and years ago when Jill and I were considerably younger. We used to go uh, for, for a number of years with our children to um, the FIEC Easter conference sort of thing that used to take place at a place called Caister over in Norfolk. Uh, it's a kind of holiday camp thing, you know, they take over. And we were uh, sat down, I think it was breakfast, it might have been lunch, but we were sat at a table one day, and two people said, oh, can we join you? And of course, you know, we're all Christians, we were meant to say yes and embrace people, and they sat opposite us and proceeded to tell us how important they were. Because um, the, uh, the, the chap, they were lovely people, don't misunderstand me, but he was something big in the Presbyterian Church of Scotland, wasn't he? And so they proceeded to tell us, what they did, who they were, what they did, how important they were, and how wonderful their children were going to Oxford or somewhere and all these things. Which is great, you know, we rejoice people who have success in their lives. Don't misunderstand me. I, I don't want to come across as some kind of, you know, cynical 
revolutionary or anything. But that mattered to them more than perhaps saying, what did you think about the message we had this morning? Or, you know, um, how are things in your church? Or do you know what I mean? Uh, you meet, you do meet in life, don't you? Two kinds of people. There are the people, oh, I won't tell you about the aeroplane. That's <laughs> another story again. But there are people who want to tell you they're all about them, their life story. Um, sometimes one word and then the flow doesn't stop. Sometimes you don't have to say anything. And they want to say, and there are other people you meet and they're really interested in you. Have you noticed that? The people who ask you how you are, what you're doing, what are you about, and so on. Sorry, I'm digressing now. But I really do think that the God cares more for what we are than who we are, who our family were, or what our job or position is or was. And as I say, I don't say this to belittle these things, uh, to sort of um, be dismissive of anyone's success or achievements, but to lovingly point out what God asks of us is what we are. First and foremost, are we his? Are we a child of God? In, uh, further back in Luke, in Luke chapter 9, uh, we, we read these words. An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. Then he said to them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For it is the one who is least among you who is the greatest. Now, like you, I've grown up in a world where that is very counterculture. It's very, it matters a great deal, doesn't it? To so many of us, and part of our education system even and the things that we tell youngsters I mean I can't tell you the CVs that I read in my uh, career you know where it was obvious they had been compiled as a result of a lesson on compiling your CV which basically is how to blow your own trumpet Uh, and and even to attribute to yourself attributes that you could only gain if you've done a job of work, and I was looking at CVs from people who perhaps wanted to come and be a trainee, you know, there we are. It's important in our society, but the Lord says different. The one who is the least among you is the greatest. And so he tells this story in order to uh, make this clear. And uh, the result we see in verse 11 For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So up to now, in this, uh, in our reading, we have seen that the Lord, as it were, is addressing those at the meal, those at the, uh, those uh, 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 around the table, principally the Pharisee and his, his friends, the experts in the in in the law and, and his fellow Pharisees. He's um, exposed their hypocrisy over the Sabbath. 
and, it, and he's told this uh, story. Um, and then Jesus has a personal word. I love this. Luke could have written, then Jesus said, and gone on. But no. He says, then Jesus said to his host. So this is a word for this unnamed Pharisee. How are you this morning? Have you got to that point yet? Or maybe it's later on, or maybe it's at the end. You think, my, that would have been a good message for so-and-so. Do you, do you think, as I sit at my desk at home, six o'clock this morning, um, I say that for the benefit of those who know I'm not the best writer in the morning. Um, do you think, I think, this is good for them, this will get them, I'll sock this to them, I pray not. First of all, it's a word for me before ever it's a word for you. And as you are listening this morning, I hope you have the same attitude. This is a word for you. And the Pharisee had observed all that the Lord had said. He'd been a part of it. But now the Lord turns and speaks to him. I've told you before how things kind of come to my mind when I'm uh, doing this. And I just imagine this dinner to be uh, a noisy affair, except when Jesus silences them with those um, words of his. And I can picture the Lord turning to this uh, Pharisee, his host, and speaking to him as if no one else is there. Am I being fanciful? I don't know. And what came to my mind was that hymn. Jesus calls us, or the tumult of our life's wild, restless sea. Day by day, his sweet voice soundeth, saying, Christian, follow me. It's a word for me, and it's a word for you. And we can't kind of sidestep it and say that's for someone else, or that even that that's for the congregation uh, at large. Do you remember that? rich young ruler which um, whose story we find later on in Luke in Luke 18 do you remember him where Jesus challenged him sell all you have give it to the poor and follow me he got it right in terms of the law he said I kept all that from my youth upwards so Jesus said well I'm going to ask one more thing of you it was a challenge And in the same way here, Jesus turns to this man and challenges him. Challenges him to do what? To step out. Step out from the normal conventions of his own society and his own class. Do something radical. Next time you give a meal, invite the poor. Invite the unwashed. The outcasts of society in your home. And don't do it looking for a present reward. Do it looking for an eternal reward. Do it with an eye on future glory. 
It's sad that in Jesus' day, those who knew the most about God, about his law, those who seemed to, uh, although they knew the most, they seemed to understand the least. Often rich and powerful, they considered themselves superior to everyone else, nearer to God. Of course, we see that wasn't the case. So as we've uh, looked at this, we have to ask, don't we, are there lessons for us? What is this passage? What is the Lord? What is the Holy Spirit saying to us this morning as we read this? Well, I can only share with you uh, what it says to me. What we need to realize is that we are as someone who is no one but for God's grace and love towards us. And we need to challenge ourselves. If, are we his? Have we accepted that love and grace? Have we accepted uh, Jesus here as our saviour? And if that's the case, what is our response? Is it a desire to live that life that we see from these passages he would want us to live? That life that reaches out in thankfulness and humility. That life that prompts us to acts of kindness. Not because we want to be good and, and do good, but because first of all, we have an understanding of how good God has been to us. I hope that's a help to you, as a help uh, uh, to me to look at it in that way.